National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. So let's jump right in. President Joe Biden took office on January 20th. We often hear about President's first 100 days and how important it is for a new administration to start strong. We're roughly 50 days into the new administration, and President Biden has already had a number of national security challenges. We'll have a discussion about those challenges today, and we'll look ahead at impending challenges on the horizon. Our guest for today's show is Professor Greg Marfleet. Professor Marfleet did his undergraduate and master's degree work at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He went on to complete his Ph.D. in International Relations and Comparative Politics at Arizona State University. His dissertation explored how leaders and advisors evaluate risks and responses to international crises. Professor Marfleet's work has appeared in Political Psychology, Foreign Policy, and the Journal of Political Science Education. He is currently the Dorothy H. and Edward C. Congdon Professor of Political Science and Director of the Public Policy Program at Carleton College. He teaches courses in International Relations, U.S. and Comparative Foreign Policy, Security Studies, and Political Leader Psychology, as well as classes in Statistical and Computational Methodology. Professor Marfleet, welcome to National Security This Week. Uh, thanks very much, John. That was a, a very generous in- introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. These uh, uh, transition times between administrations are huge events in the foreign policy world. You know, sure. As uh, <clears throat> we see sort of where the new direction the, the administration is going to take and uh, how it breaks with the old. So it's, uh, it's a really fascinating time to be a, a student of foreign policy. Yeah, and, and, and American presidents uh, tend to... Uh, support what their predecessors have done as as U.S. national policy from a national security perspective. Some things have changed. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And, and some things have remained relatively constant. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started with our, our discussion today. This show is all about national security. That term is purposefully broad and allows us to explore all manner of topics under the umbrella of national security. And let's begin by talking about uh, diplomatic opportunities for the Biden administration in some key hotspots around the world. From your perspective, uh, especially since you've sort of taken a look at, you know, how leaders deal with national security decision making, a part of your dissertation, how is the Biden team diplomatically approaching China, and is their approach likely to pay dividends? Yeah, it's a, it's a uh, the most important question probably for the Biden administration. You know, um, uh, William Burns, the new CIA director, has said it's the number one challenge. Uh, in Biden's first foreign policy speech, February 4th, China plays a big role uh, in, or uh, holds a big position. This is, the, this is the biggest challenge, I think, for the Biden administration. Uh, you know, in, the, in the speech Biden delivered, he noted that he wanted to uh, meet the growing ambitions, to confront the economic uh, challenges. You know, this, so that, that sort of language about you know, meeting, meeting China and challenging it is a key part of, I think, what Biden's thinking about. The question when it comes to meeting the challenge of China is where, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if we want to curtail China's ambitions, where is that going to happen? 
Sure. And is it you know, are we going to curtail their ambitions in Africa? Are we in Latin America? Those, those are important places, but they're probably not where we really are focused on. And I think uh, from the signals we're getting from the Biden administration, the place that they're going to try to curtail Chinese ambitions is in Europe, oh, is yeah. with our allies, with yeah. Japan, with the with our traditional. You know, you take a look at our top fifteen trade allies, mm-hmm. uh, trading partners and allies: China, South Korea, or, uh, Japan, South Korea, the European Union states. The, the, this is the place where. Um, you know, restricting Chinese growth and influence is the big issue, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, uh, a lot of the actions of the Trump administration were running perfectly counter to that. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, during the Trump administration, they imposed you know, uh, tariffs on steel and metal from Canada, you know, and from the EU. Now, uh, just four days ago, they announced a, a four-month moratorium on those tariffs on, on European goods. Right. So there's a clear indication. And, the, of course, the Europeans, the day Joe Biden was uh, inaugurated, the, Europe, the EU ambassador of the United States came out and said, hey, we can talk about these tariffs and get them off the table now, right? And uh, it took them a little while. You know, a month later, less than a month later, they were, they were, they were off in you know, a moratorium. So um, – there are a number of things that the that were leading to tensions, I think, between the United States, the EU, and its other partnerships. And I think Biden's first job is to sort of push those away. Let's let's start yeah. by removing all those points of friction with our friends. Yeah. Um, and in, and as, as a way of shoring up that relationship, these relationships at, to resist China, you know. Yeah. And so there's even a there was you know the the Biden's inauguration talked a little bit about or his speech talked a little bit about putting America first uh, in in some ways to continuing on that sort of sure. populist vein uh, and there was a little bit of pushback on that from like the you know that may be a contravention of the WTO but his his the latest sort of uh, uh, ideas they're advancing is sort of like a like instead of like buy American, it's going to be buy Western, mm-hmm. you know, buy buy from the democratic world, uh, right. and so reinvigorating our relationships with the democratic world, uh, getting the Europeans back on our side, not antagonizing them. These are going to be key points. And we're thinking about like a bunch of the things that were the steel tariffs were some of them. The withdrawal of troops from Germany was another one that you know a, a point of contention. You know why aggravate the Germans on this right. on this front? Um, um, but you know and, and other things that the U.S. has some interests in that are friction points with the Europeans that we're going to have to work out, like Huawei and 5G, you know, that question, the technology question. How much are we going to um, resist Chinese technological incursion into our into our allied spaces, and we're, we've sort of lost some of that fight already. With Italy saying they might go with the Huawei, you know, technology, and Spain, and, and you know, France has resisted, and Germany's on the fence. But that kind of thing is something that they're going to really have to work on. To shoring up the Western alliance has got to be their number one priority. Yeah, and, and moving forward on those te- on those technology issues, uh, I mean, if China's <laughs> offering up the most advanced technology. Most countries are going to want to try and embrace that. So yeah. the Western democracies better have some sort of R&D effort uh, to, to, to out, outstrip uh, China on that front. Uh, this is an area where, you know, the U.S. market-oriented, like, let the market solve it is a bit of a problem for us. You know, the, none of the major carriers have been able to agree on a particular 5G format. Mm-hmm. They don't want to lose their investment in 4G that they just made. Right. And so they're kind of hesitant to sort of, okay, let's advance on another product. But that just left an opening for, yeah. for the Chinese technologically. Yeah. So, yeah. And on that diplomatic front, uh, how do you see the Biden administration sort of tackling uh, situations like uh, with the Uyghurs, uh, with Hong Kong, uh, diplomacy with Taiwan. This is tricky, you know, um, for a couple of reasons. One, 
we don't want to start a new Cold War with China in the same right. way we had. And and it would be a very different event anyway. You know, with, with the Russians and the Soviets in the Cold War, we have virtually no economic ties with them. Right. Even today, yeah. you know, Russian-U.S. Uh, economic uh, ties trade is less than half a percent of exports or imports. Almost nothing. Like right. we, a little bit of vodka comes here. I don't know what heads there, but that's about the extent of it, right? Uh, whereas with China... You know, we're talking about 17% of U.S. imports come from China and 7% of our exports go to China. This is an inc- – like, it, it may surpass Canada soon as the number one U.S. trade relationship in that regard. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like we can start a Cold War with these guys and expect to not have some repercussions. And then you look at the the growth of the Chinese middle class. There's right. 400 million people that are currently right. in the middle class in China with an income between 15000 and $75,000. That's an enormous market. Yeah. Everybody wants into that. The Europeans want into that too, and and you know, and the Chinese are are uh, cultivating that as uh, in terms of uh, establishing a new. It's not a trade agreement; it's an investment protocol. But they really want to see more European investment, and uh, this is all. So, how are we going to handle all of these uh, human rights? Do we push hard on human rights? It's hard to when when you when there's that much economic uh, yeah. involved. Yeah, and 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 I'll. I'll make one final comment on China before we we move on to our next topic, which is going to be Russia. But uh, one of the things that I've talked about in some of the the lectures that I give with uh, Global Global Minnesota, which uh, has this thing called the Great Decision Speaker Forums, and and I speak for them once in a while. But I talked about this in the past, that if you think about this incredible rise of the Chinese middle class, and the same thing in India, right? Now, if their definition of what it means to be middle class is to consume natural resources the way Americans have done for the past 50 years, what what happens to the planet when you have 400 million more Chinese and, I don't know, 300 million more Indians consuming those resources? Yeah, yeah. So sustainability becomes a big, big question. <laughs> really important issue. Yep. So let's move on to Russia. What do you what do you see happening there with the Biden administration and relations oh. with Russia? I think the answer is not much. Yeah. It's already looking pretty grim. You know, um, um, the the news that um, Russian internet hacking uh, or, or um, organizations are already kind of trying to sow. Um, uncertainty about vaccines mm-hmm. apparently there's a vaccine disinformation campaign coming out of the russians right now <laughs> and you and you and you step back and you ask well how can we have relations with a country that's willing to to do that you know and and uh, to and of course the hacking uh news of, of not long ago all these things adding up there's a few places where um russian and and american diplomats could potentially uh find some common ground and that's the new start agreement yeah, yeah. you know at those super high level we can count and quantify how many warheads kinds of questions we could probably make some some headway but just about everywhere else we're going to be struggling you know and the russians um still i think are stinging from nato expansion in 2004 you know and uh they uh they see the, the you know uh, Related to the China question and, and Russia's lack of economic in- integration, they look and say, well, we, we moved to the market world in you know, the 1990s, and, and yet we still have very little foreign investment, yeah. very little, except in the natural gas and, and, and oil sector. We're basically still kind of shut out of the global economy. And you look at what China has done by comparison, mm-hmm. 
And you can see the, there's a lot of, you know, obviously Russian animosity there. And then there's all those other, you know, the Crimea and Ukraine issues that are that are sort of constantly, and Georgia, these questions that are constantly kind of needling the U.S.-Russian relationship. It's hard to imagine that we're going to get very far until maybe Putin disappears. But even then, yeah. you know, it's hard to imagine them uh, embracing some revolutionary, you know, democratic leader at that point. Yeah, they'd, they'd have to have some sort of strong uh, reformer uh, to move in. And that might have been Navalny, but uh, not yeah, anymore. Not anymore, <laughs> you know. And, and, and this is, it's, you know, that you can see from the history of it, you know, Obama attempted the reset. Bush went, Bush, Bush 45 or whatever it is, 43, yeah. 43 went and visited and said, I can see into his soul. Yeah, Trump yeah. was 45. Yeah. Uh, I can see into his soul with Putin. Uh uh, there's been a series of attempts to sort of try to reach out to them and reset mm-hmm. the relationship, and it just never seems to work. And I think we're going to hear some of the same language from the Biden administration that, mm-hmm. in that regard, but I don't think it's they're going to make a lot of headway. Yeah, it was probably a, a good strategic move, I think, on Biden's part to to, uh, to come to a quick agreement with Putin on extending uh, the nuclear treaties and, and the open skies. Treaty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think we can go from there, maybe on. Yeah, we, on if we settle the big geostrategic thing, then you know the rest of it might be manageable. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's shift uh, to Iran. That seems to be another big uh, challenge for for, uh, for America lately. What do you think of uh, Biden's uh, diplomatic effort to get Iran back to the table to to renegotiate the the joint comprehensive plan of uh, of action, offered referred to as the nuclear agreement? The nuclear agreement. This is a big deal. Biden's facing a fair amount of domestic pressure from within his party on this one. Mm-hmm. You know, 150 uh, congressional. Democrats signed on a letter saying we need to restart the JCPOA. 120 Republicans signed a similar letter on the other side of it. And then there's a third letter out there with 70 and 70 uh, saying, yes, we need the JCPOA, but we also need these other things, Mm -hmm. uh, including, you know, uh, uh, forward momentum on uh, missiles, on s- support for terrorist activities that Iran's engaged in, you know, stabilization of the Middle East question. Um, so there's a lot on, a lot of pressure and, and countervailing pressures on Biden. And there's a funny kind of game going on in the Middle East right now in terms of signaling. You know, both sides are signaling willingness, but they're also signaling, you know, that they're not going to come too easily to the table. Right. You know, uh, uh, the recent missile attack in Syria that the Biden administration uh, did, that was a signal to the Iranians that we're still going to play hardball on, in the field that way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're sending maybe more you know, congenial signals as well. Uh, the Yemen situation, right. where we decided we we're going to back off from supporting the Saudis in Yemen. Well, that's a contentious issue for the Iranians as well. And so in some ways we're signaling, you know, maybe we're going to be a little less on the Saudi side in the in the rivalry, and so you know the, the there's a whole series of the airstrikes. Um, the Iranians are also pushing the the situation. The, the recent re- revelation that they created uranium metal uh, right. was a you know this is a precursor to weapons construction. Now, right. it, it the metal they created isn't weapons grade, but they have the technology to create that material. All they need is enough fissionable material to do it. These are the sort of signals that suggest yes, if you don't do something about getting back to the table, we're going to progress on on mm-hmm. this thing for sure. Yeah. And uh, and so they're trying to put pressure on the U.S. to come back. Now, of course, Biden. I think smartly is saying we won't return until uh, we won't lift sanctions until you return to the original agreement. And and the Iranians are saying, well, you left the agreement. We didn't leave the agreement. You come back first. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the window may be closing on the potential for that. And, yeah. you know, there's some argument that it may be not this year that they managed to get that together. What that means for the Middle East, I'm sorry, the, the other, uh, there, you know, th- but the, the Iranians are sending some positive signals. The They just recently talked again about uh, prisoner exchanges, mm-hmm. you know, and then the U.S. signal, um, again, this is, you know, in the Middle East, everything's connected to everything. Right. This is the this is the problem, right? Yep. And um, um, the signal that the U.S. sent with regard to the criticism of Mohammed bin Salman uh, on the killing of Khashoggi, right. right? That CIA document that's been made public. So, to, to, in the Iranian eyes, that's that's a good thing in the sense that they're sort of bringing down the Saudi regime, and the, so lots of mixed signals. Uh, as 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 everybody tries to figure out how to pressure the others to come to the table, right? And I, I it's hard to say that they're going to succeed. You know, yeah. That the, the Middle East is a, I mean, it is a difficult conundrum for any American president. You have uh, essentially, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran as the two big power players in the region. Uh, Saudi Arabia being uh, Sunni uh, and and having Mecca on their on their territory. <laughs> And uh, Iran leading the Shia contingent of uh, of Islam, and there's sort of a a, a long term ongoing kind of religious civil war between the, those two sects of Islam, uh, and it plays out in the regional competition between those two countries, which Absolutely. is why the Yemen civil war, as a proxy war between those two countries, yeah. uh, has been ongoing and bloody and brutal. Yeah, and Iraq uh, and Syria and Iran, or yeah. Iraq too. All of yep. these places are you know con- contested territories now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's let's continue on. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Greg Marfleet, and we're assessing President Biden's first 50 days of national security policies and actions. Uh, let's shift into economics, uh, maybe for a little bit. Canada and Mexico are important trade partners to the U.S. Uh, how do you see the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, known as the USMCA, playing out? Uh, is it going to deliver better outcomes for, for working-class citizens of all three nations? Uh, should Biden seek additional changes to the agreement? Uh, or, or is it best to let the new trade deal play out for a few years, maybe, and, and see what works and what doesn't? Yeah, good question. You know, global trade right now is hurting. Uh, the COVID impact on global trade may be a 14% contraction in global trade. That's yeah. enormous. And uh, so it's a little hard to tell, you know, with UMSCA just being negotiated, what it really means. There weren't that many significant changes from NAFTA mm-hmm. in UMSCA to suggest that there's going to be a big kind of sea change of, of a few things, like the percentage of automobiles that have to be, you know, built in the three countries to be tariff-free. And the, interestingly, the $16 minimum wage uh, uh, provision that's in, in uh, for automobile manufacturing uh, in, in the agreement is interesting, given the $15 minimum wage discussion we're having federally, right? right? right. Um, but it's hard to say that any of that's going to uh, have a big impact. The dairy industry, you know, is one of those areas. Maybe that'll help some Wisconsin farmers. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's a, it's a little difficult. The area where I think um, so, you know, I, I, t- uh, as you noted, I grew up in Canada. So, uh, you know, disclaimers in, in place. But uh, I grew up kind of watching the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement turn into NAFTA, turn into UMSCA. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the, the big debates that was uh, an issue in Canada at the time uh, was, con- was concerning drugs. There was a fairly vibrant uh, generic drug manufacturing mm-hmm. industry there. They weren't subject to U.S. 
you know, intellectual property protections and patent restrictions, and they were much more liberal up there. And so uh, part of the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement was to extend U.S. patent protections into Canada and create one market for, mm. for drugs and things like that. And there was a lot of Canadian nationalism at the time said, we don't really want to give that up. And, and well, now COVID has come along, and this has started to generate some issues. The, um, the Canadian government contracted three times more right. COVID uh, vaccines than they would need to cover the entire country, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even more than that. Uh, and they did it strategically, trying to like, make agreements with each of the, each of the producers. And then, and they, and they actually, they made a bit of a strategic mistake, but maybe not in the sense that they uh, were concerned that Trump was going to say America first on vaccines mm-hmm. and then get shut out. So they contracted a lot with the European market, mm-hmm. but the Europeans haven't been able to ramp up production the way the Americans have. And Trump did say America first on vaccines. And so they've got all these contracts that haven't been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe in a month or so, they'll get the dosage. This is the question. But right now, the, the results generated a lot of anti, you know, free trade thinking right. you know the rise of sort of post covid vaccine nationalism uh, and people are pointing to the old Canada US free trade agreement saying you remember when we gave up all of our drug manufacturing capacity mm. that was a really bad idea you know and um, so i think uh, in the context of that if we were to see any changes to umska it may be to secure access under these you know obviously where national security and you know human security meet in in the economic realm yeah. you know guarantees that yeah we have an integrated market for medicine and drugs and vaccines that can't be abrogated for national mm-hmm. purposes uh otherwise we end up all devolving back down to nationalist foreign policy so um i think that's you know if there's going to be any changes that would be pushed it might be something like that okay yeah yeah like you said that 14 percent contraction it's probably not a good time to sort of uh oh. take a, i mean probably we need to get Everybody vaccinated, get the economy back uh, rolling, Stimulated, and, and then right. we'll see what, yeah. what it really looks like. Yeah. Uh, let's t- let's take another quick look at, at China, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. <laughs> uh, maybe you could explain that to our, our listeners. Some sure. some may know about that. Uh, how do you see that playing out across uh, Asia, the Middle East, and, and Africa? And should the U.S. be concerned about the economic powerhouse the Belt and Road Initiative uh, might deliver for China? Yeah, this is a this is China's sort of great global outreach effort. Um, uh, it, the, the Belt and Road is uh, two, 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 two components. One is a, a land-based access to uh, Central Asia and eventually to Europe. Uh, and then the other is the string of pearls, a, sea, a set of sea, uh, naval, naval um, uh, ports uh, across the Indian Ocean to Africa. Um, and these have been... Uh, when, when it was first announced, this was sort of like China's version of new imperialism in some ways, right? This is how China is going to, uh, you know, to, to start, China doesn't have a lot of friends, right? Right? You know, China has North Korea, China kind of has Pakistan, both of those, Pakistan largely because they hate India, and they both hate India, and they agree. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's not like they have this, the, the way the United States does, this incredible alliance network of connected um, countries with security guarantees and trade relationships. So China's trying to build that, and the way they were going to build that is by trying to build these transportation networks. And, mm-hmm. and but... Uh, the, they're in some ways they're backfiring. The classic case is Sri Lanka, where they built a right. you know gigantic uh, n- uh, um, 
port slash naval base, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what they're doing. They're they're basically pairing up uh, the flat. You know, trade follows the flag kind of argument, right? Yep. So they they build a naval base and or they build a they build a port, but it's also a naval base. And and the problem is that they have been doing this through a system of loans with the target countries. Uh, and oftentimes those loans are at such exorbitant rates. They're they're very 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 attractive at the beginning. You know, we'll pay all the upfront costs. We'll build this thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually the loan starts to come due. And uh, in a number of situations, there's been defaults, and then the Chinese government has said, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna take over the port and run it now ourselves instead right. of allowing you to run it." Um, so, from a soft power perspective, this is backfiring. Yeah. It's it's an attempt to kind of use financial resources in a hard power kind of way, but it's backfiring on them in a soft power kind of way. And so, mm-hmm. a lot of um, you know, people who are watching this are saying, you know, we don't really have to do much to counter China on this. It's it's basically kind of running up against its own limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that uh, the estimate was for the Belt and Road Initiative to be completely uh, successful would be a $29 trillion <laughs> infrastructure <laughs> investment across uh, m- m- much of the world, in fact. Uh, yeah. so. uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Uh, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Greg Marfleet, and we're assessing President Biden's first 50 days of national security policies and actions. Uh, Greg, let's move on to some, some of the more military-specific uh, issues. Uh, how do you see things shaping up specifically in Afghanistan? Uh, the, the Biden administration was, was left with these unfinished negotiations with the Taliban. At least we'd started moving forward on some sort of a, a, a political uh, diplomatic agreement. Uh, with the Taliban and the Afghan government over the future of Afghanistan. What role should the U.S. continue to play in support of that nation? And where do you think uh, Biden goes from here based on where things are at today? This is is difficult. This is a really difficult situation. That's why we have you on the radio October. (laughs) October of this year will mark 20 years in Afghanistan if we're still there. And I think, uh, you're right, the Trump administration had begun direct negotiations with the Taliban under the sort of only Nixon can go to China argument, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, you know the Republicans could the Republican leader could go and negotiate with the Taliban. I can't imagine that a Democratic president would have been allowed that le- leeway to go negotiate with the Taliban. But he did, mm-hmm. and uh, he set uh, May first as the deadline for withdrawal of all U.S. troops. There's what twenty five hundred U.S. troops yep. still in the in the theater, um, and uh, you know right now Biden hasn't withdrawn that number like may 1st is still the withdrawal date technically they haven't backed off of that and it's probably a smart strategy yep. in the sense that but there there's a funny game being played there because they're using the presence of troops to try to pressure both sides but they're sending the exact opposite message to the uh, to the government of kabul they're saying we're going to stick to the may 1st withdrawal deadline if you don't get to the table and negotiate with the taliban on some sort of governance model right yep. and then to the taliban we're saying well, if you don't come to the table and negotiate with the government, we might just stay forever again. Right. And the ta- the Taliban is looking at, at this whole situation with, I uh, imagine, incredulity because it's pretty clear all of the signals are the United States does not want to be there for 20 years. Right. And so for them, I think, you know, the rational strategy is just to play the waiting game and wait us out. Uh, the the Afghani government uh, is feeling all sorts of pressure. And I... You know, there, there were two documents that were just recently leaked. Mm-hmm. The the Blinken letter to to uh, Gaff, Gaffney, the uh, Ashraf Ghani, Ghani, yeah. Ghani, the yeah, the and the uh, and the peace proposal, and uh, y- you can almost 
to to read those documents, it's it's clearly a U.S. play for time in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, he's proposed the the proposing multi-party agreements to try to f- form a stable government of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. including Russia and China. India and Pakistan and Iran. Like, right. and, and we don't have very good diplomatic relations with either Russia or Iran right now, or China, right. or, or, Pakistan. or Pakistan. <laughs> so we're going to invite these, these, these countries to the table to try to sort out Afghanistan. And we can't get along with them anyway. Um, the prospects for a rapid resolution of this through that multi-party system is not there. So to me, you, know, you see a ploy, for, a ploy for time a little bit to figure this out. Biden certainly, you know, the, the the downside of the whole the whole thing that the, the thing that's looming in the background on all of this is if the U.S. withdraws, wow. and there isn't some sort of stable agreement, and even right. if there is a stable agreement, that's it's likely right. to be abrogated pretty quickly, yep. and we're going to see a devolution into civil conflict. Mm-hmm. The Taliban, which is mostly in control of all of the countryside, is going to want to be in control of the cities too. We're going to move conflict into those population centers. It's going to look like Lebanon, or it's going to look yeah. like you know ISIS uh, in in Iraq. It's going to be ugly, yeah. and of course, the Biden administration doesn't want that on their on their plate. Uh, you know, this hum- it's going to be a humanitarian disaster potentially, a refugee disaster, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so they don't want that. So they but they so they can't really leave, but they can't find a stable government. Taliban's just going to play for time. This is a precarious situation, and and uh, there's hard, it's hard, again hard to see an upside. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, the uh, there's a strong argument that what reason do we have to stay? You know what. Right. What national security interest do we have in Afghanistan any longer? You know, yeah, it is a it is a it is a conundrum to say the least. Yeah. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the civil war in, in Yemen, uh, and Biden opted to to pull our involvement out completely to leave uh, leave that proxy fight strictly between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, was that the right move? Yeah, this is it. You know. Um, it looks like the Biden administration is trying to decenter the Middle East in American foreign policy, and and you know the Obama administration did the same thing with the pivot to Asia. Yeah, the attempt, the, 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 the attempt, <laughs> <laughs> the attempted pivot to Asia, right? Yeah, um, and it, it you know didn't really work out. We're going to try again, mm-hmm. and part of that process, I think, is uh, to de uh, to. Downplay, I'm deg- uh, diminish potentially. I guess they uh, de-escalate even the te- the tensions that are between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, there's a, a cold war there in in the Persian Gulf. Sure. There's a reason it's called the Persian Gulf. You right. know, uh, Iran is is potentially the big player. The Saudis obviously uh, see themselves as a big player. The Saudis have said that if Iran pursues nuclear weapons, that they'll pursue similar technology. This is, you know, what we don't want right. is this crazy um, rivalry in the Middle East to start into a hot war between the two biggest players. And so I think this is a signal to, to, the, to, the, uh, to the Saudis that uh, we're not going to uh, support further escalation of this of this of this cold war hostility rivalry into something more extreme mm-hmm. we're going to ratchet back so probably a good decision the negative is that we may be ceding yemen to iran in that case which is not going to make the saudis very happy no. right and yeah. um and so this is this becomes the the question of u.s saudi relations is a is an important one it is you know the the mohammed bin salman uh um revelations revelations like the news that everybody knew right you know uh and the way that's played out um it looks like you know we're signaling perhaps um less of a 
of an uncritical commitment to Saudi Arabia. You know, it used to be ironclad. That's our, you know, Saudi Arabia is our country in the region. And maybe that's uh, fraying a little bit. Uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether, uh, how we sort of reconfigure where our interests in the Middle East are. I, I heard uh, somebody talking some time ago, talking about the fact that if, uh, if the Western democracies were able to make this sort of Manhattan Project uh, investment in clean and renewable energy and we could get off the fossil fuel standard, uh, you could basically pull out of the Middle East except for maybe uh, continuing to back Israel. Right. Uh, and then and then we don't have to worry about anything else uh, from that point on. The, the regional countries that be have to figure out how to live together. So let me uh, let me finish off with one last question because I know we got to get you out of here and get you back to class. <laughs> last uh, day of classes. Yeah. yeah. So this one will sort of uh, tap into your your dissertation that you did oh, uh, when you're okay. earning, your, earning your doctorate. <laughs> uh, President Biden er- ordered his his first airstrikes in retaliation yeah. for a rocket attack on, on U.S. personnel. Uh, these things are always referred to as proportional in nature and are meant to deter future attacks. So there's a there's a, a national security decision-making process that a president or, or any uh, political leader has to go through to, to make those decisions. So uh, all the presidents uh, do this, right, a proportional response. Uh, president Trump launched a few of his own, particularly against uh, Syrian forces in retaliation for chemical weapons attacks during the Syrian civil war earlier. Does proportionality work? Uh, and perhaps more importantly, do these kinds of airstrikes actually deter bad behavior, or is it more for domis- domestic political consumption? What do you think? Uh, it's a good question. Um, the you know David Petraeus said uh, after uh, the killing of uh, um, uh, oh I'm, I'm trying the assassination Soleimani Soleimani yeah his name just escaped me that we reestablished deterrence with Iran then. I'm not sure we did. You know, rockets came at us again. We've, you know, proportionally responded. Are they likely to be deterred? Is this the last we'll see? Are they going to be, you know, uh, chastened to not do any more missile attacks on it? I think that's unlikely. We'll probably see continued provocations. Oh, the Iranian provocations are are strategic. Mm -hmm. They're intended to send messages that we could continue to cause trouble if you don't come to the table, right? And the United States has responded back and said, don't cause trouble you know, or else, or else. <laughs> whether everybody listens is an interesting question. The danger, of course, is if you're not re- going to respond proportionally, what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And you can either respond, you can under respond, like, right? you know, the, the Iranians uh, launch a missile attack on US, uh, a U.S. base and kill some contractors or some soldiers, and we don't respond. Well, that's not an acceptable way either, really. And right. then the other side of it is to escalate. Mm-hmm. you know to to respond in a in a you know proportionally larger manner but the danger of escalation is it leads to more escalation could be yeah. and uh and so you know proportionality becomes the kind of rational measured low risk but important signal kind of response and i think that's why you see if you look at international relations statistics work there's lots of evidence to suggest that proportionality is the norm in international affairs when it comes to trade arrangement. You know, we, we put tariffs on the EU. They put tariffs on us. It's a, always a game of proportionality and reciprocity, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the way it works. Now, that you know, it's uh, uh, whether or not um, it's actually going to have a deterrent effect, 
I, that's, you know, uh, it's hard to imagine. You yeah, know? And, and that goes back to that discussion on, you know, the tools of national power. Yeah. Uh, and we bring that up on, on this show quite frequently. <laughs> so when you're talking uh, economics and diplomacy, that proportionality probably works, but does it work on the military side? Uh, I, I see we, we repeat the, these same things over and over again. Yeah. To a certain extent, maybe you wonder if uh, Teddy Roosevelt's big stick approach may have been <laughs> the right one. <laughs> well, yeah, one big, yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, so I, we've actually come to the end of our show for today because uh, Professor Marfleet has to get back to class. Uh, Professor Marfleet, thanks so much for, for joining us uh, today on National Security This Week. Oh, thanks for having me, John. It's always a fun to chat with you about this stuff. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio, and I'll, do my, I'll, find my, I'll find experts who can address your topic. Have a fantastic Wednesday and a great finish to your week. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Find your style with Patriot Lighting and save with 11% off everything now at Menards. Patriot Lighting ceiling fans reduce energy.